Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The world has never been safer, wealthier, or healthier. So why is it that our foreign policy is dominated by fear and inflated perceptions of threats that can harm us? My guest today, Michael Cohen, and his co-author, Micah Zenko, seek to answer that question in their new book, Clear and Present Safety, The World Has Never Been Better and Why That Matters to Americans. The book makes the convincing argument that fear-mongering has distorted U.S. foreign policy and distracted us from recognizing impressive gains in human development. This is a refreshing conversation, I think. One trend that Cohen and Zenko identify and define is something they call the threat industrial complex, and we spend a good deal of time discussing how that serves to shape U.S. foreign policy priorities. I strongly recommend this book. It recently got a nice review in the New York Times, and I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com. A quick note before we begin, a big thank you to everyone who's supporting the show via Patreon by becoming premium subscribers. Uh, Remember, you unlock access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clips service. This is a comprehensive yet pithy roundup of global news that probably doesn't make the the headlines in most mainstream media outlets, but is relevant to you if you are working in the global development or humanitarian fields or just seek a, a broader perspective on the news of the day around the world. You'll get access to that clips service plus other bonuses by becoming a premium subscriber. I'll post a link to the Patreon page in the description field of this podcast episode, wherever you're listening to it on your phone or tablet. All right. Now here is my conversation with Michael Cohen, who is a columnist for the Boston Globe. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I don't know, almost 10 years ago, I was at this conference, International Affairs Conference, uh, and I was watching, it was a tribute to John John Mueller, who's a a, um, political scientist at at Ohio uh, State University. And he did this whole sort of spiel about how you know, look, the world is very safe. The U.S. faces no threats. We live in a world of, of, of declining conflict, declining war, uh, and we just don't really pay attention to it. And I guess I hadn't really thought about that. I mean, he, he was right. And I, and I sort of thought that's a really interesting um, idea that we don't hear en- enough about. So I started writing about it. Um, and then my a co-author and I, Mike Kazenko, you know, began talking about it quite a bit and said we should do an article about it. So we did a piece for Foreign Affairs, which got a lot of buzz. And uh, you know, decided after that that we wanted to to write a, a sort of longer book about it, sort of, you know, taking this argument a, a bit further. Um, and I think, you know, in some respects, 
there's a sort of you write about politics and policy for a living, and obviously, you know, you bring a lot of passion to it, a lot of a lot of interest in the subjects. For whatever reason, this subject really kind of just appealed to me, you know, because it's a very sort of evidence-based argument. I like evidence-based arguments. It's a big part of what I do. Um, and it's sort of this big piece of evidence about the world and about how we think about the world that we just don't factor into the way we talk about the world, we think about foreign policy, we think about America's role in the world. And it's also something that, you know, you, you, you look at, there's this great optimistic story to tell that is just not being told. And, um, and because I think that story is not understood, uh, in this country, in the United States, we make a lot of mistakes in foreign policy. We make a lot of mistakes that cost people's lives. And I think my hope is that people have a better understanding of sort of the key themes of this book, about what's happening around the world, about the true nature of the threats facing America, that you know, you hope that it has a really positive effect on, on, on policy. So, and that's ultimately why, why any of us do what we do, is we want to influence policy, we want to influence how, how politicians act and, and, and the impact of that. So what evidence do you cite um, to support, you know, your claim that the world is more peaceful and healthier and wealthier than ever before? I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about this argument is that the facts are sort of unassailable. <laughs> you know, I mean, there has been this notable decline in, in war, in, uh, in particularly interstate war over the past 20 to 30 years. Um, and this is something that, you know, the, the data on this is pretty, pretty, you know, incontrovertible. Um, and so you've seen this decline in, in, first of all, you've seen 70 years of no great power conflict, which is, which is often great power conflict is the source of, of, of the worst, uh, mm-hmm. of wars, the worst conflict. Yeah, I, I, I should say, I always, you know, when I'm talking about the UN, I give talks about the UN, I always say, you know, the, the basic measure of the success of the United Nations is that there has not been a world war in the 70 plus years since the UN was founded. Absolutely. Yeah, whereas good, in the previous yeah. two decades, there were two world wars, three decades or two world wars. Yeah. That's right. And that's actually a great point. And you're absolutely right about that. Um, and, you know, it's, it, and what I think also has happened, and this is where I think the real progress has come, is that the decline in interstate war. You know, that you had you had lots of terrible interstate wars, terrible, terrible civil wars that went on during the Cold War. And, and that has significantly declined in the past 20, 30 years. And that's a huge, a huge development for for international peace and security. Um, uh, otherwise, if you look at and, uh, there's also sort of arguments been made about the the uh, increase in democracy and political freedom, although in recent years that, that sort of stepped back. But, but to me, the most important. And the most the most um, un- misunderstood or misappreciated, underappreciated uh, transformation in global affairs is the advances in human development. People, you know, the, the people uh, live healthier lives. They live longer lives. They're more likely to go to school. They're more likely uh, to live to not live in poverty. You know, the poverty rate has gone from near fifty percent thirty years ago to less than ten percent today. I mean, these are extraordinary advances. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, you know, and one thing I'm always struck by is the evidence on this is pretty hard to contest. And so, you know, people still do it. People still find reasons to criticize these arguments. But it's pretty, it's pretty hard to argue with, 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 with what we know is out there. Um, and, I'm, and by the way, I just want to just even to go a step further. If you look at things like infant mortality rates, maternal mortality rates, uh, HIV, AIDS deaths, uh, you know, people who die from disease in general, famines. All of these things have declined dramatically. Um, and so, you know, the, the, to my mind, the, the evidence of this is not really in question. It's, it's, it's an issue more about how people understand it and, and what, they're prepared, what they want to do in order or were prepared to do in order to enshrine 
these changes and make sure that they, they're solidified in, in global affairs. And, and your book makes an argument uh, convincingly that these successes and advancement of, of human development and in achieving a more peaceful and process and, and prosperous word are not really what's like emphasized by the foreign policy community here in the United States. And it's not really what drives the big foreign policy debates here in the United States. So why is that? What What's the root of the reason for why we um, don't sort of build on and celebrate and have these successes define our foreign policy rather than the threats that we supposedly face? So I think there's there's two reasons. I think one is that good news doesn't play, especially in the media, the way the bad news plays. You know, it's the old, the old line about local news. If it bleeds, it leads. And there does seem to be, you know, there's a, a preponderance of, a, of focus in international affairs on disasters terrorist attacks, things like that. And, you know, if some country has an election uh, or some country like, like Colombia signs a peace agreement with, with, with rebels and ends a, ends, ends a long, long standing war or, you know, Eritrea and Ethiopia uh, have some sort of reconciliation, it just isn't a big news story. It doesn't get the sort of attention. It's on this podcast. Show. That's for it's sure. On, we've we've done not, both yeah, those stories right. as, as they were happening. That's right. And I and, even did a whole, <laughs> whole series on all stories on, on how we defeated polio too, or near it. Anyway. Please and, go and, on, and, yeah. And that's great. I'm and, the outlier. and I wish that 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 more people listen to this podcast and understand this because you have these stories out there that just don't get the kind of attention. But I also think that there is a, and we call this in the book the threat industrial complex. There are a group of people, institutions, organizations who really drive some material and reputational benefit from, frankly, scaring people. Um, you know, if you're in the military and you want to go to Congress and say, we need more money, we need more tanks and more ships and more planes. You don't get that by saying you know, everything's pretty good, actually. We don't really have any threats facing the United States, and and really, you know, we're we're doing okay here. Um, if you want to draw attention to your foreign policy issue, you don't draw attention to it by saying everything's fine. Um, if you're a military contractor, you don't get new contracts if you sort of say, you know, we don't really need more planes. I mean, really, there's really no there's no competitor to the U.S. when it comes to uh, on military affairs. So there is this kind of institutional. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's even purposeful. I think just that that you have this kind of infrastructure of, of, of individuals who realize that to get attention to their issue, to get money for their issue, uh, to get uh, to build up their own reputation, uh, they they need to sort of scare people a little bit. Can, can we talk um, a bit more a bit in more in detail about this threat industrial complex? Because you know sure. you and Mike Zenko, you uh, you know identify and define a trend that I've certainly you know noticed in my years covering foreign policy, which is this kind of hyping of, of threats as a way to, you know, serve, frankly, certain, like, you know, financial ends. Um, and also it has sort of complementary political ends as well for, you know, those politicians who are, you know, who are hyping these threats or not even hyping these threats, just sort of emphasizing them or focusing on them, um, perhaps inflating them. But so can you just kind of break down like the political economy of like the threat industrial complex? Like what, what are the elements of it? Well, I mean, I think I mean, you, you touched on a key point that uh, Ed mentioned before, which is the politics of this. And, and this goes back to the first days of the cold war. Uh, there has long been a, a, I guess, strain in American politics of, of emphasizing foreign threats. Um, and, and to do so in order to build public support for a more you know, internationalist foreign policy. And this was certainly true. You look, go back and look at Harry Truman. He announces the Truman Doctrine. You know, he wants to build support for, for uh, U.S. aid to, to anti-communist groups in, in Turkey and Greece. And he's told, you know, this may, this may be apocryphal, but told by Senator, Senator Vandenberg 
that you need to scare the hell out of the American people. And he does that. He scares them. He tells them that there's a real threat out there to America from the, the spread of communism. And as a result, we need to spend, you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars in Turkey and Greece. And, and of course, that, that is a successful effort. And so politicians from that point on sort of build on that, you know, realizing that it's hard to, to, to justify sending, for example, half a million American troops to Vietnam. So you need to sort of make the case that if you don't do that, they're going to come to America or they're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to uh, uh, somehow undermine our national security interests, which, of course, is what politicians did of the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, and then there's a political side of this, too, which is that, you know, after, you know, when China falls to communists in, in, in the 1950, you know, what happens if, Republicans use this as a way to attack Democrats as being insufficient. You know, who lost China debate? They're insufficiently anti-communist. And they prosper politically from doing that. And so I think both political parties sort of realize after this that there's real benefit in, in scaring people. And Republicans realize that they can scare people or they can portray Democrats as soft on communism. And Democrats' response is not, not to sort of say this is not true, but it's to sort of say, yes, we can be as tough and, and as threat-mongery on communism as you guys can do. And that's be, that, 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 I think, has become sort of the default in American politics. And you saw this even after the Cold War ended. You saw this around 9-11 with, you know, things like, like Karl Rove saying that, that, that Democrats have a pre-9-11 mindset. You saw this in 2016 with Donald Trump using immigrants and using the, the threat of immigrants coming to America and committing crime as a way to justify, uh, to, to, to build his political support. And same with, with the Muslim ban. So I think politicians have sort of figured out that, you know, scaring people about foreign threats uh, portraying the other side as not uh, being as aggressive, as being as committed to dealing with that, those threats has, has, gives them a lot of political um, um, benefit. And so, so I think that's a big, big part of what has driven this, this industrial complex. I guess like, you know, so the, the military industrial complex uh, from which you, you know, borrow, borrow the name, um, you know, one thing that's made it so enduring over the years is that, you know, the manufacturing base of military is spread out all across the country in every congressional district, even, you know, the most enlightened, interesting, progressive foreign policy, you know, senators and politicians, you know, want to benefit the military industries in, in their district. I mean, you know, like Chris Murphy, a senator from Connecticut, you know, I think is a, is a great foreign policy mind thinker, will always do, you know, what is best for Sikorsky helicopters, Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and, uh, like, what's the parallel for um, why the threat industrial complex is so enduring? Is it is it almost like psychological? Like we're sort of predisposed to respond to to threats um, that those sort of political messages are are so resonant. Well, I think there's two things to this. I think one is that Americans, unlike a lot of other countries, define ourselves in very exceptional terms. We see ourselves as a city on a hill, and so as a result, I think we. Uh, we view our, our, our role as a form as a great power in more altruistic terms than perhaps is uh, reality. And so I think that, you know, when you have politicians to say these are things that, that the threats to us and we can, we, can, we can deal with them and we can, we can wipe them out and we can eliminate them and we can, you know, uh, um, cause freedom to, to reign around the world, we tend, to, we tend to sort of, we find those arguments sort of that they, they play to our values as Americans, I think, to some extent. Um, I think the other part of it, too, is that we, unlike other countries, define our interests in such a broad manner. We, we act, it, it, American, American foreign policy basically you know, takes the position or, or, or it, it is, is formulated around the notion that what happens in the Persian Gulf, what happens in the South China Sea, uh, what happens across Latin America, 
uh, is a national security interest and thus an a vital national security interest. And as a result, we must play an active role uh, in those in those theaters. And so I think that that you know drives. And so so if you if you define your 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 um, your national security in such broad terms, then then realistically everything is a threat, right? If 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 the Persian Gulf is a a vital area of U.S. national security, and that's been U.S. policy for now forty years, begun by Jimmy Carter in the late seventies with the uh, the Carter Doctrine. If you believe that, then yes, Iran getting a nuclear bomb is a serious threat to U.S. national security interests. Now, is it a threat to America itself? No, not really. But what ends up happening in a lot of these conversations is what is a threat to U.S. national security interests, the Persian Gulf, becomes sort of broadened to being an overall threat to the United States in general. And if, if somehow our interests are, you know, uh, narrowed or just are affected negatively in the Persian Gulf, that's going to have bad uh, implications for Americans. So I, I do think that it's, it's partly the way that we define foreign policy. And I will say also this, because we define foreign policy so broadly, because we, and in some respects, there's a justification for defining it broadly. But by doing so, the result of that is that you have to convince Americans that they should care about these issues. And the way you convince them to care about these issues is, frankly, by scaring them. Because if you don't scare them, then they're going to say, well, why should, I, why should the U.S. be involved in fighting ISIS in, in uh, Syria? Why should we spend you know, almost 20 years in Afghanistan fighting a, a war against the, against the Taliban? Um, you know, it, it, to justify this kind of expansive view of American foreign policy, you do have to kind of scare people a little bit because if you just say, well, we're there because it's a good thing to do and, and it's going to, you know, it's going to help the Afghans live better lives, that may, that, 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 that will get you so far. I don't think it'll get you far enough to justify um, this kind of, kind of, you know, exhaustive military engagements that we have around the world. So one like set of institutions that, you know, do the job of defining foreign policy are, are think tanks. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how think tanks in D.C. And, and elsewhere sort of contribute to this threat industrial complex? Just you know, talk through some examples. I know you talk about some in your book. So um, I should say, first of all, you know, full disclosure, I, I have been a part of the think tank industrial complex for a long time. Uh, I think I've been affiliated with three or four different think tanks. Oh, think tanks uh, are great. I love think tanks. I mean, I'm, I'm not no way am I critical of them. Yeah. I, I, I had wonderful experiences at, at most of them. Um, but I do think that there is, you know, think tanks, um, researchers rely to a large extent on uh, almost exclusively actually on, on raising money. Uh, and you raise money through various foundations and, and, and wealthy donors. And, you know, to get the attention of donors, to get the attention of foundations, you usually need to present your issue in very urgent terms. And again, to, to go to a donor and say, look, things are really good uh, and you should give us some money to talk more about that isn't really the kind of thing that's going to get people energized. They want to, they want to solve problems, right? They want to know that there's something, you know, that's something out there that, that, that's, that's threatening to the United States or to other people, or that, you know, that their money can help make a difference. And so I do think that it, it's, um, there becomes sort of a, a, a predisposition to talk about, uh, issues of importance, issues that you want to get funding for in ways that are threatening. And that way it, it sort of gets people's attention. It gets them to want to think, okay, this is something that I should be funding, something I should be supporting. And so one thing that I definitely saw when I was in the think tank world is that, you know, it's hard to get support for projects and for research that kind of tells a, a, a more positive story. Um, and I also think that there's something else going on here, too, which is that, you know, the military, the defense contractors and other folks sort of figured out how to game the system. And so you have a situation now in which you have people who basically are lobbyists for defense contractors going to think tanks um, and uh, 
promoting the, the issues that affect the contractors they work for in order to, to, uh, to get more funding, more contracts for those, those defense companies. So, for example, we talk about this in the book. You had um, a lobbyist for a, a major shipbuilding company uh, at a think tank talking about um, how we have, we're facing a deficit when it comes to our um, naval uh, um, um, uh, capabilities. And we need more aircraft carriers. We need more, uh, you know, uh, gunboats and things like this. And, uh, you know, sort of builds this idea up that the Navy is, is somehow, you know, operating at less than its capacity, that there are threats that we need to be dealing with. And meanwhile, this is being supported by the same people who will benefit materially uh, from people from from more money for for the Navy, for more money for shipbuilding. So there, there is kind of this. And, and in often cases, and this is something we, we talk about a lot in the book, you know, People will, will write reports, they'll go on television to talk about their issues, they'll, they'll often you know, exaggerate these threats, and they're never required to reveal their funding sources, who they're getting the money from. You, know, you go on like a CNBC or one of the financial shows, you have to, you, you're, you're required, or most of these shows require people to, to reveal whether they, have, uh, whether they own stock in companies they're promoting or companies that they're, that they're, that they're talking about. But you don't have that when it comes to stuff like this. And so you have people... Who really have like a vested interest in playing up the sort of threats that 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 from other countries or the need for more uh, higher military budgets, uh, and, and as a result, it becomes sort of like this circular sort of process where you know think tanker goes on television so or writes a report saying we need more more shipbuilding, goes to the to the Congress. Congress says yes, this is true. We definitely need to support the military. They say let's let's put more money into into aircraft carriers. And, you know, let's go use this defense contractor who builds these. Meanwhile, the defense contractor is the fund who started the whole process by funding the, the think tanker in the, in, in the first place. So it, it has become like a sort of cycle of, of uh, corruption is not the right word for it, but sort of, uh, I guess, back scratching uh, for everybody sort of benefits from this process, except the American taxpayer tends to spending, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars on, on naval capabilities or new planes or new tanks that we don't really need. So... How do you break this sort of this cycle, this complex? How do you sort of pierce that that sort of armor of um, the threat industrial complex and start to um, you know change mindsets and, and and sort of I guess ultimately change foreign policies? I mean, I, I get I have this sort of Pollyannish view um, that that facts and evidence matter, and of course the last two years have have been tough for that argument. Um, as we've seen facts and evidence not really mattering very much when it comes to our current political debates. But I do think that, you know, what you have to do is sort of put, put the, these foreign policy debates in a proper context. You know, when people talk about the threat from North Korea and say North Korea could fire a nuclear missile at the United States, you need to really interrogate that, that idea. Is that, is that really a realistic possibility? Why would North Korea do that? Wouldn't they cease to exist as a country if they did that? Don't we have 70 years of experience in how to deter uh, nuclear armed powers. I just think I think that it's it's important for people to sort of when when people make extravagant sort of claims to question those claims and to to to, to sort of ask the tough questions. And that relies a lot on our media, um, but it relies a lot on on greater transparency. Frankly, also coming from the media, uh, when people are talking about foreign policy issues, it means you, you know relying on a different set of sources, not just people that serve the military not just people who have been in sort of think tank world, but people who have sort of a different point of view about, about American foreign policy. Um, and, you know, I think that, look, it's a very difficult thing to do when you have, a, you have, when you have a industrial complex of people and organizations, institutions that are organized around 
uh, I mean, to be to be to put it to put it to bluntly, scaring people. It's very hard to sort of be the, the counter to that argument. And I, I think all you can do is sort of present the facts and the evidence and, and try to hope that Americans sort of kind of begin to understand and appreciate how these things are being exaggerated. Um, and I think one thing I will say that gives me a little bit of hope is that if you look at what happened in 2018, you had a president going around the country trying to scare people into believing that undocumented immigrants were going to come to their communities and commit terrible crimes. You had him talking about you know, migrant caravans that were going to invade the United States. And you know, a lot of, of, of the president's supporters believe that, that rhetoric and believe those arguments, but most Americans did not. Um, and I, I consider that to be sort of a positive development that, that you can actually, people can look at this stuff somewhat, um, look at it in a sort of broader context and say, and see sort of that it's not completely true or that it's being exaggerated. Um, and I just think that we have a responsibility, those of us, and I, and I include you because I, I mean, you do great work and, and, and your podcast is, is such a, is a, is a font of, 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 of context in our foreign policy debates that is so, so, so often totally lacking. Um, to promote those voices that are sort of saying, you know, look, let's 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 look at this a little more, a little more in depthly. Let's 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 question what our assumptions are, um, because when we don't do that, we 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 get into real terrible terrible foreign policy disasters. And you know, I, I can't help but, but but mention that this this month, of course, is the 16th anniversary of the Iraq War, and there's really no better example of how threat mongering, of how exaggerating threats, of 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 not sort of interrogating the the threat based arguments that people were making back then. Um, can lead to disaster. So I guess to, to, to wrap up, I, I suppose sort of focusing on threats comes with like opportunity costs that you um, are not focusing on other issues that are, are of importance. Um, you know, for example, after 9-11, focusing on Iraq, focusing on, um, on, on terrorism, what have we sort of dropped the ball on that we haven't focused on enough? I mean, I'm thinking climate change, um, which has some national security elements, but some other elements as, as well, um, that are driving the discussion. So like what, what, um, were we not paying attention to that could be a threat rather than paying attention to, um, while we were paying attention to say terrorism? I mean, practically everything, you know, I've being, if I'm being honest about it, I mean, I think what I one of the things that frustrates me the most when I look around what's happening now in the United States, you know, last year we had a, 2017, we had about 74,000 Americans were killed, uh, died from drug overdoses. That's almost as many um, as were killed by guns and cars combined. And keep in mind, guns in last year was, gun deaths were at a 40 year high. So these are, these are real thing, real threats that, that, that um, take hundreds of thousands of lives that undermine our quality of life and that absolutely sap, sap our economic productivity. Um, you know, by one estimate, the cost of the opiate epidemic annually is about half a trillion dollars in, in, in healthcare costs and lost productivity um, and, and, and a whole host of other, of other costs associated with that. So I, I do think that we, by focusing on foreign threats, by focusing 600 plus billion dollars in the military, and now the president wants more money for the military, um, and, and not focusing on things like, uh, education, like Head Start, paid family leave, which we, which is with us still the only developed country that doesn't have that, um, on, on expanding healthcare access, which of course you have millions of Americans still lacking in healthcare, um, healthcare coverage. Those things all have a, uh, have, get, get shorter shrift in, in our policy debates. And I think, and, 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 and Mike and I believe this very strongly that those issues are national security issues. Right. If, if, if you have a set of issues that undermine uh, Americans' quality of life, that, that literally re- reduce their life expectancy, 
And, and, and by the way, life expectancy in the U.S. is going down three consecutive years. That's happened, that hasn't happened in 100 years in this country. Three straight years of life expectancy going down. Um, if you have a population, 40% of which is obese, uh, which leads to all kinds of medical issues and, 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 and huge health care costs and huge you know, uh, declines in economic productivity. When you have that happening, you cannot be a great power. And, you're, and ultimately, you are, you are uh, um, undermining your economy, undermining the foundations of, 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 what, of your national power. And I think we have to sort of step back and say, these are threats to our national security. These are threats to our livelihood. These are threats to our quality of life. These are threats to our long-term future as a country and that they need to be addressed. And instead of focusing on phantom threats like Iraq and North Korea that are really not threats to the United States, uh, or at least not direct threats to the United States, or, or, and can be managed and handled in, in pretty modest and cost-efficient ways, that we need to focus more on, on, on some of these issues at home. And I want to just say one thing before we finish up, because I want to be clear on this point. I'm not making an isolationist argument. I'm not suggesting in any way that we should ignore, not, not, America should not play a leadership role in the world. I think we should. Um, I think we just need to change the way we do that and focus more on diplomacy, more on the role of international organizations, uh, more on consensus building, more on creating international norms, international rules, which have which have done enormous have it, enormous benefits not just to America but to the rest of the world. That should be what we focus what we focused on, and we focus on that and not on you know these sort of military adventures that that that, that only provide tragedy and and loss of blood and treasure. Uh, you know, I think that will be that will long by focusing on those things will go a long way toward improving. Um, U.S. national security and improving our foreign policy and saving us money. <laughs> so at the end of the day, and, and, and use that money more efficiently for the challenges we face at home. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for your time and for the book. I'll, I'll post a link to the book on the website. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. It was, it was great talking to you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael. He's been on the show several times, so always a big thank you to Michael for coming on the show. And I'm uh, really excited about this book. I was sympathetic to the arguments going into it, but I do think that he and Micah Zenko, who's also been on the show before, uh, do a really good job of kind of clarifying uh, and distilling the, the essence of an argument that, in fact, the world is getting safer and that we should not let fear dominate our foreign policy discourse. And finally, a plug to those of you who are considering becoming a premium subscriber to the show. Please do become a premium subscriber. It helps me do what I do uh, every single week, twice a week, in fact, to uh, keep putting out this great content. So thank you. All right, we'll see you next time. Bye.